This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to episode 113. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. On this episode, I chat with author Michael Blanding on the subject of his new book, North by Shakespeare. And on Ask the Expert, international best-selling author Nicola Cornick returns to answer your questions on Amy Robsart. And lastly, on A Brief History, we talk Anne Boleyn. A special shout out to my newest patrons, Elizabeth H., Susan K., Sharon L., Stephanie S., Colleen L., and Lisa Ann. Thank you so much for your support, and thanks for the ongoing support of my existing patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so on Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or Podbean. Patrons receive all kinds of freebies, so if you would feel so inclined to reward me with your pledge, I would be ever grateful to you. Patrons have access to all kinds of cool stuff like access to the tutor course, ebooks, exclusive patron only content, and so much more. I'll include the link in the show notes as well. All right, without further ado, Michael Blanding. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, you were so kind enough to send me your book, North by Shakespeare. And I am so interested in the fact that you're an investigative journalist and you're an author because you have written another book. Um, but I'm kind of curious, how would you describe yourself? Yeah, I, I do describe myself as an investigative journalist. And all the stories I write, whether it's a magazine story or whether it's a book, I really specialize in taking a really deep dive into whatever subject it is that I'm that I'm working on. So I think that's my really my greatest skill is to take a subject and really, you know, grab it by the teeth and and investigate it uh, as much as I can and learn as much as I I can about it. And it sounds to me like being an investigative journalist is a lot like being a historian or a researcher. Would you agree with that? It certainly can be. And I have always been fascinated with history and uh, reading about history myself. And my last book, was uh, The Map Thief, and it was about a thief of rare maps, but I also investigated the history of map making and cartography and how that related to the history of Europe. And so it really got me into this uh, sort of hybrid mode of storytelling where I'm, I'm reporting on a contemporary issue, but also looking at, at the history of it as well. So for those who have yet to pick up your book or hear anything about North by Shakespeare, how would you describe it to someone? North by Shakespeare is the story of a scholar by the name of Dennis McCarthy. And the subtitle of the book is A Rogue Scholar's Quest for the Truth Behind the Bard's Work. And he really is a rogue scholar. He's uh, completely self-taught. He doesn't come from a traditional background. But he started looking into Shakespeare and the sources of Shakespeare's plays about 15 years ago and got completely obsessed with it and has spent, you know, every waking moment researching it and using this computer software to analyze it. And he's come to the conclusion that while Shakespeare wrote all the plays attributed to him, he based them on these earlier source plays by another writer by the name of Sir Thomas North, hence the name North by Shakespeare. And that's what I investigate in in my book. And and we end up traveling through Europe together. And I did my own research in the archives to really uh, see if I could prove or disprove this, this outlandish claim. So while you were in the archives, did you learn a lot about Thomas North that maybe you hadn't known about before or that was maybe newly discovered evidence? I really did. You know, Thomas North is somewhat of a shadowy figure. He is best known as the translator of Plutarch's Lives, which we know is the source for Shakespeare's Roman plays. But he has a couple of other translations that that really aren't read very much today, which uh, Dennis also believes inspired Shakespeare's work. And he was sort of the the second son of of a a prominent lord by the name of Edward North. And so he really got sort of short shrift in the archives. There's there's not a whole lot uh, about uh, Thomas particularly, but I was able to find a lot about his family that that, uh, Dennis didn't even know about and that other people didn't know. And I also was able to look at a copy of one of North's early translations that has all of his marginalia in it. And that was really fascinating. You could see his thought process and see what he underlined and wrote in the margins. And, and that was very revealing in, in, in my research. 
I'm wondering, prior to this book, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you have rated yourself as being a Tudor fanatic? <laughs> I would say that I was uh, pretty low on that scale. I mean, I I had uh, sort of come across the, the Tudor era uh, while researching my last book, The Map Thief, and, you know, it sort of immediately predates the age of, of exploration. So I knew a little bit about Elizabeth and, and uh, Henry VIII and, and the other uh, characters of the age, but um, I honestly was, was not too familiar with, uh, with the period. And it was really uh, an education and a fascinating education to work on this book. I read, you know, book after book after book and watched every, uh, every TV show I could, you know, whether it was a documentary or, or, or a, uh, a drama about the period and, and really just got so immersed and so obsessed with, uh, with these, uh, these stories of, of the kings and queens and nobles of the time. And now you're hooked, right? <laughs> I am indeed. Yeah. Even since I've stopped reading the book, I, I've been uh, continuing to, to read on the period and, and, and watch, uh, watch, uh, shows about it and, and read, uh, continue to read Shakespeare's plays, which I'm not quite through all of them yet, but uh, it really is a fascinating era. Well, we obviously all are, are really obsessed with the Tudors here. And th- this book, you kind of teamed up with Dennis on it a little bit. Can you explain how this whole project came together for the two of you? Yeah, so Dennis approached me about six years ago after I had given a reading for my last book, The Map Thief. And he sort of seduced me. He uh, started a conversation with me afterwards and, and we were talking about maps and history. And then he invited me out for drinks with his, his adult daughter and over drinks after about uh, two martinis, he suddenly uh, raised this issue about this research he'd been doing into Shakespeare's plays and uh, asked me if I wanted to, to look into it with him. And at that point I was just uh I didn't believe any of it. He started telling me about Thomas North and about how Shakespeare had used him as a source. And it all seemed very far-fetched and, and outlandish to me. But eventually he started sending me more materials and, and all the research that he did. And in particular, there was a manuscript that he had discovered in the British Library that no one had ever known about before, which was just very clearly a source for a number of Shakespeare plays and I ended up writing an article for the New York Times about that, and it, and it uh, got on the front page of, of the New York Times, and all of these scholars were, were praising it and saying, you know, how amazing it was that this manuscript was discovered that no one had ever known about before. But then as soon as Dennis would talk to someone about, oh, and I think actually this manuscript wasn't used by Shakespeare, but it was used by this other writer, Thomas North, and he wrote plays that Shakespeare adapted, he would just get immediately shut down, and they just didn't want to give him the time of day. He was really this pariah in the Shakespeare community. And I just thought that was really unfair. I thought that he had done some really great work and it really needed to be uh, put forward. And so I I approached him and said, why don't I write the book? I'll follow you around. I'll test it myself. I'll do my own research and we'll see where it lands. And uh, that was the beginning of this, this sort of strange partnership that really resulted in this, in this really fun project we did together. And the two of you traveled all over for your research. How many different countries did you go to? We went to, we spent a lot of time in England. And uh, then I also spent a lot of time in England by myself. But then we also took this wonderful trip through France and Italy. And the thing about Thomas North is that he lived this amazing life where he was this diplomat and a soldier and and. You know, the, uh, he was a soldier in, the, in Ireland and the Netherlands, and then he was a diplomat to France. And he took this trip to Italy when he was younger to, to visit the Pope. And so we, we went and we, we retraced Thomas North's steps and, and went to many of the locations that Dennis believes inspired scenes in the plays. And along with us, his daughter is a documentary filmmaker also went. So we had this whole, whole sort of entourage with this film crew and we would go to these different spots and uh, just talk about uh, what might've happened there and, and how that might've inspired Shakespeare. And it became a really fun way to, to work on the project, but also to write the book and, and recreate these scenes. Now you mentioned that he was um, on embassy for Elizabeth I and, and doing all these um, different diplomatic missions and such. Was he one of Elizabeth's favorites? Uh, Certainly not. No, Uh, he was uh, never very high up in, in the court. And, and in fact, always seemed to sort of be at the wrong place at the wrong time where his first book, 
was a translation called The Dial of Princes. And it was a Catholic work that he had written for Queen Mary while he was at the Inns of Court. And he published this huge tome. It was this really remarkable achievement that he'd spent years on. And it was uh, published. And then, you know, just a year later, Mary died. And he, you know, basically had tied himself to the wrong horse with this Catholic work. And so he had to start all over again. And he ended up hitching his wagon to the Earl of Leicester, Robert Dudley, who is, of course, Queen Elizabeth's great favorite and, and great suitor for many years. And he really thought that he could achieve favor by uh, by writing these works on behalf of, of Leicester and gaining the Queen's favor that way. And of course, if Leicester married the Queen, then he would be, you know, the right-hand man at, at, at court. But of course, that didn't happen either. So he was always sort of... Uh, uh, on the on the wrong side or sort of picking the wrong horse in, in favoritism at the court. And, and it wasn't until really at the end of his life that he finally uh, achieved some some kind of uh, measure of of, uh, of success and, and recognition from from Queen Elizabeth. But uh, he, he lived a fascinating life uh, in the meantime. Did he marry and have any children? He did marry twice and he did have two children. And there's very little, of course, you know, uh, that's not atypical for, for women in, in, in the times, that there's very little about them in the archives. And despite my searching and Dennis's searching, it was very hard to find much information about, uh, about either of his two wives. But his daughter, Elizabeth, uh, actually appears in a, strangely, in a, in a reference to uh, Edmund Spencer. And it's believed that she may have been the uh, source for Edmund Spencer's sort of love in this in this work, the Shepherd's Calendar, which he he dedicates to this this uh, uh, to this woman that he's sort of wooing in in this in this poem, and and uh, her name is Rosalind, and uh, it's been speculated by some scholars that it's a an anagram for Eliza Nord, which would be Elizabeth North, and that she may have been uh, sort of a, a love object of, of Edmund Spencer. So that was a really cool connection that Dennis was able to to uncover and and. Uh, he, he relates that to the Rosalind of, of, of As You Like It as well. But that's that's a whole sort of other story. Now, you open the book um, with the Arden murder, and there was a connection there with Thomas North, if I'm correct. That's right. So the the murder of Thomas Arden, for, for those of, of your listeners who don't know, was a uh, sort of scandalous murder that took place in 1551 in which this woman, Alice Arden, murdered her husband, Along with um, she and she and her lover at the times, a man named Thomas Mosby, they they murdered her husband, and it was this huge scandal, and it was written about in Hollinshed's Chronicles for like five pages, and and uh, you know no one could believe that this woman would sort of you know rise up against her husband in this way, and there's this whole conspiracy of servants that that took part in the murder as well, and it was the source of of a play about forty years later named Arden of Faversham which some scholars today believe was one of Shakespeare's early works. And in fact, the Oxford Shakespeare actually attributed it to Shakespeare now. And the Thomas North connection is that Alice Arden was actually Thomas North's sister. She was, she was his half sister and he would have known her and he would have known uh, Mosby and, and Thomas Arden. And Thomas Arden was actually the secretary for his father, Edward North. So it was this whole sort of tangled uh, tale involving the North family. And uh, Dennis believes that, uh, that in fact, Thomas North had written a play about his family that was later adapted by Shakespeare. And that's how the play Arden of Faversham came to be. That story about the Arden murder is one of the most fascinating ones about a woman who's really just trying to get rid of her husband. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's also, what's, what's amazing about it is that there's also this whole kind of connection to the dissolution of the monasteries, which, um, I hadn't known much about um, before I started researching it, but Thomas North's father, Edward, was actually in charge of the dissolution of the monasteries for, for a period. And the play, Arden of Faversham, sort of almost blames the murder on the dissolution and, and the fact that Thomas Arden was was uh, buying these abbey lands in, in Faversham and sort of, you know, kicking everyone out of the properties. And, and that was sort of like caused this conspiracy of people that turn up against him. So there's this really fascinating history that that's wrapped up in it. And, and, you know, that makes it uh, just so many, so many layers of, of complexity. That was really, really fascinating to look into. 
Now, you mentioned that several of Shakespeare's plays were likely inspired by Thomas North's previous work. Can you tell us um, a couple of the other ones, maybe without totally giving away your book? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah, so... So the the method that that Dennis uh, McCarthy used in order to make these connections between uh, Thomas North and Shakespeare was he would take this um, this computer software, this plagiarism software, and he compared all of Thomas North's published writings and all of Shakespeare's plays. And when he did, uh, and he ran it through the software, it just like lit up like a Christmas tree, and there were thousands of phrases that were in Thomas North's work and Shakespeare's. Shakespeare's works. And that was his first inclination that there was something there. But what was really fascinating was as he started looking into the life of Thomas North, he started finding all of these connections in the plays between either uh, things that Thomas North did or connections to his patron, uh, the Earl of Leicester, Robert Dudley, and uh, various references that when you, when you kind of knew Thomas North's life and you knew Robert Dudley's life, they sort of, you know, popped right out at you. Uh, for example, uh, in 1555, Thomas North went on this delegation to Rome, and he went to uh, the city of Mantua and went to this church where there was these lifelike statues there that were, uh, um, you know, really seemed like they they were uh, true to life. And that same day, he went to a palace in, in Italy that we actually visited as well, and and uh, called the Palazzo Te, where there are these amazing frescoes by this artist named Giulio Romano. And Giulio Romano is significant because he's the only artist that Shakespeare mentions in all of, of his plays. And uh, he, uh, in the winter, in the play, The Winter's Tale, Giulio Romano is actually uh, responsible for creating this lifelike statue of, of Queen Hermione who comes alive at the end of the play. And it's this very dramatic sort of climactic moment. And uh, also in that palace, uh, the, the frescoes by Giulia Romano are these uh, sort of this pastoral wedding with all of these gods and goddesses. And, and in The Winter's Tale, there's also a pastoral wedding with, with all the many of the same gods and goddesses. So you just see this kind of correspondence to Thomas North's life and the experiences that he had and, and the plays. And, and it happens over and over. I could give you um, many more examples. Yeah, the similarities are so uncanny that once all the evidence is presented to the reader, you go, well, yeah, this seems obvious now. Yeah, it really does. And I tried to I tried to really maintain my skepticism as a journalist, but it became harder and harder the more I talked to Dennis and the more I looked into it uh, myself. And as I said, a lot of the references, too, they weren't just about Thomas North, but they were really commenting on uh, you know, the biggest issue of the day, which was Queen Elizabeth's marriage prospects. And uh, not only was uh, Thomas North sort of supporting the Earl of Leicester's suit, but he was sort of trashing anyone else that she was considering. And and you see these reflected in, in the plays where, like, for example, at, at one point she was considering uh, Don John of Austria and the, the villain of Much Ado About Nothing is named Don John. And Don John was, uh, the real Don John was the bastard brother of King Philip. And in Much Ado About Nothing, Don John is also a bastard. And then when she was considering the, the Duke of Alençon from France for a long time, you just see all this anti-French propaganda in, in the history plays. And in fact, in Henry VI, part one, there is a Duke of Alençon who is actually defeated. He's sort of this cowardly figure who's sort of defeated by this English hero Talbot, who is actually an ancestor of the Earl of Leicester, Robert Dudley. And so you know, over and over again, you know, once you sort of uh, look at it through this lens, you start seeing these references that just wouldn't have made sense in Shakespeare's time decades later when, you know, the Earl of Alençon was dead or Don John was dead, um, but would have made sense in this earlier period where, where Dennis believes Thomas North was writing these plays. I'm very curious. What was your favorite part of this project? Mm, oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um Certainly, my favorite part of of the reporting was uh, was the traveling that we did. I mean, it was just really, really wonderful to go to Venice and Verona and Padua and all of these Shakespearean locales, you know, that you've heard about and, and read about in the plays and and uh, actually see them firsthand and then try to to relate them to the to the life of Thomas North. But I also really liked reading the plays. There were many that I'd read before, of course, or I'd seen before, but 
there were some that were just totally new to me. Like I'd never read As You Like It before. And um, what a wonderful play that is. It's just this, you know, uh, comedic play with all of these characters sort of, you know, roaming, roaming about the forests and fields, sort of holding these, you know, conversations about life, love and philosophy and everything. And, and it was just such a, such a joy to, to really immerse myself for, for, you know, really over two years and, and reread and reread all the plays and, and uh, watch as many that I, that I could. And, and it was really a great way to spend my time. Uh, it sounds like that. <laughs> that sounds like uh, amazing. What a what a fun way to to work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When you went into this project, did you have a different idea of what the end product would look like, or did you know exactly from the beginning what you wanted to do? I didn't know exactly what what I would uh, come up with at the end, but I knew that I wanted to do something that would kind of meld genres together and would include, you know, this contemporary story about this scholar Dennis and his, you know, attempts to, to get anybody in the ivory tower to listen to him and, and, and what it takes to really change people's ideas and, and, uh, you know, to, to create knowledge. And so that was always kind of foremost in my mind, but what I didn't expect was that I would get so immersed in the history of the time and that that would become a major part of the story as well. And at some points almost threatened to sort of overwhelm the contemporary story. I got so fascinated <laughs> with uh, all of these um, historical uh, references in the plays or just setting the context of who Thomas North was and what he would have been interested in and what he would have been writing about. And so that was really a, a treat for me was to try and create a book that would uh, bring alive some of these characters like Queen Elizabeth and, and Lester and, and, uh, you know, uh, Lord Burley and, and, uh, the Earl of Sussex, who was sort of Lester's great enemy and, and really kind of bring alive these, these, uh, these sort of court factions and these court, court battles and, and then try to understand how they might've influenced these, uh, these works that Thomas North was writing. That became really fun and really fascinating for me. As a researcher myself, I can't help it when I start um, looking deeper and deeper into a subject. Occasionally, I'll end up going down some crazy rabbit hole. <laughs> Did you come across any rabbit holes that just pulled you in? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think every um, every book I read, it was it was you know there were just so many fascinating facts to to chase and. I really had to rein myself back and, and in times I really had to, um, you know, I would write things and then I would just cut it down to, you know, maybe a, a fifth of what I had, you know, uh, Lady Jane Grey, I had a whole kind of, you know, half a chapter on her and I said, no, I really, she's really not important to the story and as, as fascinating as she was, I really had to cut that down to, you know, just a few paragraphs. And, um, you know, I think for, for, for me, what I ended up realizing was that I was not writing a history of the Tudor period. I mean, there've been so many people who've done such a better job at that, that than I ever could. And what I, what I could really offer was a really unique lens on the period through the, the lives of this one family, the North family. And so as I, as I started writing it, or as I got further into the project, I kind of set a rule for myself that I couldn't go more than a page or two without mentioning one of the North's that it, whether it was Edward North, uh, Thomas's father, or whether it was Roger North, Thomas's brother, or whether it was Thomas North himself, I always had to place them at the center of the story and say, what were they doing? Where were they? What were they seeing? What were they thinking about the events that were transpiring? And I feel like it really created this unique lens and this unique view of history that uh, was very different, maybe from from some of the the more comprehensive histories that have that have been written. That was the one of the first things that I told one of my friends when I was um, reading this book was it's like nothing I've ever read before. Mm. And that's in a great, it's in a good way. It was so interesting to me how you tell Dennis's story mm. and then you also mix in the actual history. And the part that I think surprised me the most is I wasn't expecting to be pulled into Dennis's story as much as mm. I was. He was he's a person, you know, and you show this human side of him um, that I think added so much. Yeah. And he is a fascinating character. You know, I, I say that he's a self-taught scholar, but that really only begins to <laughs> to express uh, his uh, his personality. He really, um, you know, he spent a, a lot of his life um 
really, uh, he, he dropped out of college and, and spent about 10 years playing ultimate Frisbee and was on a championship ultimate Frisbee team and tried to be a writer on the side. And then he got really into uh, science writing and, and somehow was able to publish in these scientific journals. And he wrote this book on the science of biogeography and looking how plants and animal species move around the world. And then it was really that, strangely enough, that led him into Shakespeare. And he wanted to look at how stories move around the world. And, and he started looking at Shakespeare's plays as an example of this and just got sucked in. And, you know, one, one person called him the Steve Jobs of the Shakespeare community. He's this really like... He's this polymath who is kind of obsessive about whatever topic he takes on. And it just happens to be Shakespeare, but probably could have been quantum physics or any number of other topics that he would do well at. Um, and I could relate to that as an investigative reporter, as I said, who also really likes to dive deep into into subjects. And uh, so we we had a good time together. And, and even though I tried to maintain maintain my distance as a reporter and, and questioned him and was skeptical. We really enjoyed traveling and talking together and, and, and speculating on, on these sources of Shakespeare's plays and, and what that could mean for, for the plays themselves. So did he absolutely hate your book? <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he loved it actually. He, uh, he was, uh, you know, he, he, you know, he, he knew going into it that, that I was going to be questioning and that I wasn't going to necessarily take everything that he said as, as gospel, but you know, he's been trying for 15 years to get out this research in any way he can. And he's written scholarly papers. He's tried to publish his own book. And time after time after time, he just gets these doors slammed in his face. And I think just to be able to, to tell his story, even if it's me who's telling it, I think was just um, so so validating and so satisfying for him that he's really... Um, really appreciate it. And he's promoting my book, uh, you know, as much as I am. So it's, uh, it's really a, a great relationship that we developed together. It's almost as much of a biography on him as it is about, you know, solving this mystery. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It, it really is a sort of a profile of this really unusual scholar. And, um, you know, what it takes to follow something for, as I said, 15 years, where he has been following this with, um, very little validation. I mean, there's one scholar who is really all in it with him and it's partnered with him. Her name is June Schluter. And she is a Shakespeare scholar herself. And she's really um, partnered up with him and, and um, come to believe from the evidence that, uh, that what he's, he's saying is true. But outside of that, he has um, been almost personally attacked by a lot of other scholars who just can't kind of wrap their heads around any alternative view of Shakespeare where he's actually using these other sources and not sort of, you know, this great genius who's sort of writing things full form on his own. And, and uh, because of that, I, I really admire Dennis for following through on this. I mean, uh, I don't know if I could have done it frankly and, and stayed with this for 15 years in the face of all this rejection. So it really does become this profile of what does it take for a person to be able to do that? And, and uh, it really takes a, a special kind of uh, tenacity, I think. I love that you shine the light on him because there are so many of us in the Tudor community who have similar type projects that we've been working mm. on for years where you feel like, you know, you're just beating your head on the wall going, I need mm. somebody to listen. And I love mm -hmm. that you were able to do that for him. So thank you from all of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure there's there's other great stories out there that I'd love to hear about. Well, Michael, where can everybody find your book? Uh, so the book is called North by Shakespeare, and it's in all the usual places. You can find it on, on Amazon or at your local indie bookstore. And you can also visit my website, uh, michaelblanding.com. And I should also plug Dennis's website if people are interested, sirthomasnorth.com, in which he's put, put a lot of the original research and a lot of the results of this plagiarism software research if people want to take a closer look and, and make up their own minds about it. And if anybody wants to chat with you, where can they find you on social media? I am on Twitter at Michael Blanding, and I am on Instagram, Michael underscore Blanding. And I would love to connect with your listeners. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. And now, Ask the Expert. Hi there. Welcome to Ask the Expert. I'm Steph, and I'm here with author historian Nicola Kornick today to answer your questions about the mysterious Amy Robsart. Nicola is the author of Forgotten Sister, The Phantom Tree, and the upcoming Last Daughter of York. Welcome, Nicola. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. We are going to kick things off with a question from Anna on Facebook. 
Just to uh, give us a little background on Amy Robsart's childhood, can you tell us a little bit about her upbringing and her pre-Dudley years? Okay. First, I should say she was born in um, 1532. Her father was a knight. So uh, she came from a sort of uh, the landed gentry, uh, a family that was based in Norfolk. Um, and her father, Sir John uh, Robsart, owned several estates. So he was he was quite well to do. He had he kept sheep, so he he made quite a lot of money in the cloth trade, and he was locally a very influential man. But we're talking about a whole sort of rank of society down, say from from the Dudleys, from the aristocrats. So whilst Amy's um, upbringing would have been very comfortable, um, she uh, she she wouldn't have it wasn't aristocratic in any sense. Um, she was the youngest child, and in fact the only legitimate uh, child that Sir John had with his uh, second wife. Uh, but she did have quite a lot of older half-siblings, um, an illegitimate brother of Sir, uh, from Sir John's uh, relationship, but also her mother's children from her first marriage. So she was growing up in a house that uh, um, would have had uh, lots of other uh, lots of other people, children older than she was, um, around, uh, which I think must have been quite good company for her. In terms of her um, education, she was educated to fill the role um, of a country gentlewoman. So she would have been taught from a very early age by her mother um, how to organise the running of a substantial manor house, how to manage the servants. Uh, she'd be taught uh, the basics of accounting and, and mathematics. And we do know um, that she could do this because later on we have letters from her in which she refers to various accounts uh, for the um, for, for the for the cloth trade relating to the estates that she'd inherited, so she had uh, numerous skills. She also um, we also know that she could read and write. Uh, she wrote a very neat hand, and she would have developed practical skills as well, like um, herbal medicines and anything really that her mother would have taught her, so that she could oversee the running of the house. Um, intriguingly, I think we also um, have the suggestion that she spent some of her time probably in her mid-teens in the household of the Duke of Norfolk. Uh, and that would have been quite a different experience for her, I think. You know, a, a grand house, uh, a grand aristocratic house. She would have seen how that operated. Um, and from that, she would have learned not only the sort of the etiquette and the manners of, of the way that sort of society operated, but also uh, more refined accomplishments like um, music and dancing. So she wasn't a scholar, uh, I would say, in the sense that, say, the Princess Elizabeth uh, was educated to a very high level in languages or, or, or things like that. But she was a, she had a well-rounded education. And I like to imagine that she also had a happy childhood. So how then, uh, Crystalyn asks, how did she meet Robert Dudley? And when they met each other, was he already close with Elizabeth? Um, well, we can't be absolutely sure, uh, but we think that Amy and Robert uh, met when they were both 17 or 18, um, when he went to Norfolk as part of his father's campaign in 1549 to crush Kett's rebellion. It seems likely that this was the point at which they met. In the summer of that year, there'd been an uprising in the county of Norfolk, uh, protesting against the enclosure of land. And in fact, some of Amy's uh, relatives on her mother's side were actually involved uh, with the rebels. Um, at the same time, Amy's half-brother, Philip, had actually been kidnapped by, and held hostage by the rebels. So her family was, was kind of divided um, on this. But her father, Sir John Robsart, was very loyal to the king uh, at, at the time, Edward VI. Um, and we know that uh, uh, Robert's father, the Earl of Warwick, and Robert and his brother Ambrose all stayed at Sir John Robsart's manor at Stansfield um, during uh, this campaign against the, uh, the Kett's Rebellion. So it's, it's probably likely that that was the time they met. Um, of course, Robert did already know Elizabeth at this stage. Uh, they had um, they had met as children and, and actually undergone some of their um, uh, some of their education together. So uh, they their childhood friendship um, predated uh, Robert's meeting with Amy. Speaking of their marriage, so they were married in 1550, I think. Is that correct? Yes. Um, which was 
obviously before the Jane Grey debacle and his family was absolutely involved in that whole thing. So Keith Coy was wondering, how did that situation impact Robert and Amy's marriage? Yes. So as you say, Robert and Amy were married in June 1550. And um, of course, Edward uh, VI was still king at that point. And Robert's father, the Earl of Warwick, later Duke of Northumberland, was very high in royal favour. But uh, just to give a little bit of the background, of course, when Edward died in 1553, the Duke of Northumberland conspired to put Jane Grey on the throne in place of Edward's elder sister, Mary. Um, There were lots of family connections here, of course. Jane was Robert Dudley's sister-in-law, married to his uh, younger brother, Guildford. Um, And making her Edward's successor was really a desperate move by Northumberland to avoid Mary's accession the return of Catholicism, of course, but um, probably equally or more importantly to him, his own fall from favour and power. So I think one of the very interesting things about the whole the whole Jane Jane Grey sort of debacle uh, was that Robert himself was uh, in fact sent to capture Mary before she could reach London. It was seen as crucial that he should stop her in her tracks before she could get to the capital in order to raise. Uh, the support of the, uh, of the of the citizens of London. But Robert failed. And I think this proved to be a hugely costly mistake. Uh, it's one of those moments in history which I think are quite fascinating, actually, because the whole of history could turn on something like that. If he had succeeded, if Jane had remained queen, if Robert had captured Mary, how differently matters might have turned out. But of course, um, he didn't. He failed. Um, Mary got away. She got to London. She uh, rallied her troops. Um, and Robert, his father and his brothers, of course, were all imprisoned for treason. Uh, and, and as I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners know, um, Northumberland, Jane and Guildford Dudley were all executed. Uh, fortunately for Robert, of course, after a spell in the tower, he um, and his other brothers were actually released and pardoned. But they were very, very fortunate, I think. Between the imprisonment and then later on his time back in court, did Amy and Robert have any extended time actually living together during their marriage? This question comes from Deborah. Yes, not really. I mean, it was really interesting when um, thinking about this. Um, you know, when you start to look at the amount of time that they did have together, it, it was very small. I mean, at the start of their marriage, that was the time, the first about the first three years uh, they were together. They were together at the court of Edward VI. They lived uh, in a a couple of different um, places in London and then of course it all fell apart um, after after Mary became queen. Robert was imprisoned for a while and although um, uh, although Amy was allowed to visit him, of course, she was actually living with her mother's relatives at that time. Once Robert had been pardoned in 1554, uh, they did live together again then um, until the death of Queen Mary in 1558. But that's kind of um, gives a, a bit of a false impression because from from that point onward, I mean, Robert was no favourite with Mary. And in fact, he was only really tolerated at court when um, Mary's husband, Philip of Spain, was around. Um, and Philip wasn't around that much. And Robert was always in Philip's entourage. So actually, he spent an awful lot of those four years abroad. So again, he and Amy hardly had any time together then. Uh, and in fact, by the time that Elizabeth uh, becomes queen, Amy had already moved first uh, to Throcking in Lincolnshire and then, of course, to come in a place. So from that point onwards, she only ever saw Robert on very rare occasions when she either visited London or he came to the country. So, yes, I mean, in the whole of their marriage together, apart from the, the early years, uh, they spent really very little extended time in each other's company. Al Pratt says, you know, furthering that, did the fact that they were childless actually impact their marriage, do you think? Or maybe was that the result of a kind of an already strained relationship? Yes. It, that, again, is such an interesting question. And I, have, I am actually really interested in the lives of, of, of um, childless women in, in that time, because, of course, there was such a huge pressure. Uh, on, and of course, it was always the pressure was always on the woman to provide an heir or a whole uh, a whole family full of them. Um, and I think that for anybody, that kind of as time passed by that t- that kind of 
pressure would would mount. I mean, I would have imagined that after the first three years of them not producing any children, people would have started to talk about that. And, and I do believe that um, it, it was it was a, a bit of a vicious circle in a way. Of course, Robert started to take more and more time away and just wasn't wasn't around. Um, but also, I think they became more distant from each other because they didn't have that shared stake in, in, in a joint in a family and in a joint future. So, you know, this was a hugely significant thing to him, of course, not to have an heir. Uh, he had titles and he was getting titles and estates and, and, and he had just he had no family to lead them to. And I think that must just have forced them apart even more. Now, turning again to his relationship with Elizabeth a little bit, Douglas Breeden was wondering if you think that possibly their marriage was just a cover for his relationship with Elizabeth or did they really love each other at any point? I think they did to start with. Um, yes, I mean, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that the marriage was, uh, I don't think the marriage happened as a cover for, for Robert's relationship with Elizabeth. I do believe that in the very beginning that it was in fact a love match because that kind of fits with the circumstances of, of the way they met. They were both impressionable teenagers. You know, they were only 17, 18. You can imagine it's quite exciting. Robert would have been very dashing. There was a rebellion going on. Amy was reputedly very beautiful. You can just imagine the two of them meeting under those circumstances and falling in love with each other. Um, and of course, let's not overlook the fact that Amy was also an heiress. So she was, whilst not um, you know, uh, considered to be kind of an equal match for Robert. I think there was plenty of attraction there. I do think that, uh, that, that he was in love with her or, or infatuated with her. Um, and I think, of course, he had already uh, known Elizabeth since they were children. But um, I don't think he was in love with Elizabeth when he and Amy met. Um, I, I mean, this sounds a bit cynical, but I think Robert's love for Elizabeth greatly increased when he realised that she might be queen. Um, and I'm not suggesting um, that he, he didn't care for her genuinely, but he was a very ambitious man. And of course, when Robert and Amy married, there was no indication that Elizabeth was ever likely to be any closer to the throne. You know, um, Edward uh, was king. He might have ruled for many years. Nobody would have um, anticipated that he would die and then marry in quick succession, would die childless as well. Um, and I think that by the time Elizabeth became queen, Robert's initial infatuation with Amy had died. Um, and there really wasn't, you know, as we were saying about them not having any children, they had nothing in common, they barely spent any time together. So I think at that point, you know, it was all about Elizabeth from there on in and whatever had happened in the beginning with Amy, had just it, it had gone then. Uh, I don't think the the marriage was originally a cover, but I think that sadly um, it, it did. It, it did just fade away, really. And yeah, I mean, being the queen is a desirable <laughs> thing in someone that you're looking for. So. I think it is when you're as ambitious as Robert Dudley. To be I think so, too. <laughs> OK, now we're going to start ta talking a little bit about her mysterious death, which, right. of course, we cannot prove. We only know what we know. So no pressure to solve this case. <laughs> but <Do> my best. <laughs> yeah. Who did? No, no, no. I'm just I'm not <laughs> Okay. So starting with the fact that she was found alone in the house at the bottom of the stairs, did she really send the servants out for the day or weekend or whatever it was? Was that a suspicious occurrence or was that normal for her to do? The fact that she was home alone, is that a big deal? To um, yeah. Well, it's, she, um, to be absolutely um, accurate, she was, not, she was not completely alone. There were actually two other people in the house. Um, what had happened was that she did try to send all the servants away to the fair in Abingdon on that day. Um, uh, but one of them objected, uh, one of the ladies objected because it was a Sunday and, of course, it wasn't considered seemly to be going out making merry on the Sabbath. So this woman flatly refused to go. Uh, and then somebody else said, oh, well, I'll stay and keep you company. So they were actually sitting downstairs in, in the parlour playing cards um, at the time that it happened. But it is very interesting that when they refused to go, Amy became quite angry about the fact um, that she wasn't going to be left on her own. It all sounds rather odd. It does feel as though she did want to be left alone in the house. Um, 
I don't think that in itself giving the servants a day off to go to the fair was particularly suspicious. I mean, you could argue she was just being a, a generous employer and, and, and giving them a bit of a treat. But I do think it is strange um, that she she encouraged all of them to go all at once. I mean, you wouldn't normally leave a house like that completely without a staff to run it. Um, and also the fact that she was apparently annoyed when somebody refused, you know, it just feel, it does feel that there's something strange there that, um, that, that we don't quite know what that was all about. Thank you, Nancy Buchanan, for that question. Um, next, the crazy shark lady <laughs> said um, that she knows the coroner's report was likely rushed. Um, have you heard that? And if you had, is, is this coroner's report reliable in any way i haven't heard that and i and and i um i think that's really interesting um yeah as i say i haven't heard that at all and having read about it reading the details of the process by which the coroner investigated the body and recorded his findings um and the subsequent uh, process of the, the inquest jury i would say for the time it feels as though it was quite thorough um, I mean, the, the, the coroner even measured the wounds on Amy's head, for example, to make sure that he had recorded them precisely in terms of length and depth and everything. So uh, there wasn't a scramble in the sense of rushing it through. I mean, it's very interesting because um, I had read and heard that Robert Dudley was very anxious that his wife's death be investigated very thoroughly. And of course, you can take that two ways. On the one hand, you, uh, he sent a man to Cumnor specifically to keep him informed on who was who was going to be on the inquest jury, who was do, who the coroner was, this kind of thing. Um, and you could you could read that in the sense that he's feeling very guilty and he wants to make sure if he can influence it and rush it through a bit, then that would be great. Um, uh, but at the other extreme, you could say, OK, he's feeling worried because uh, people are already starting to talk and suggest that he might have killed her. And he wants to make sure it's thorough so that he's exonerated. So, I, I mean, I think on balance that um, I would say I feel I, I haven't studied this in, in massive detail, but I didn't have the impression that it was rushed through or that that was suspicious in any way. Clearly, it wouldn't be as thorough as a process might be uh, that we would be, be used to. But by the standards of the time, I think it was it was done according to how it should have been. And back to Nancy Buchanan again and another listener named Callie Fry Girl. They were both wondering if there's any proof of the theory that Amy possibly had breast cancer. And if she did, is it possible that its advanced stage had any effect on her cause of death? Yes, and this is a really interesting theory because there were suggestions um, that she did have breast cancer and that arose, uh, there was a, quite a lot of talk about that in the spring of 1559. Um, I think there was gossip at court and this was then reported by the Spanish ambassador who specifically said that she had a malady in one of her breasts and that's fairly, that's fairly precise, isn't it? But to sort of, to, to be reporting that back to, to the to the court um, uh, the, uh, the court back home and again the Venetian ambassador also said that she had been ill for some time um, but that is that is all we have to go on and I think as a historian you're always gossip is so interesting because so often there is an element of truth in that and it seems you know that, that it was common knowledge that Amy had been ill that Robert was basically just waiting for her to die uh, so that he could marry the queen all, all that sort of thing but in the, the febrile atmosphere of the court you know that kind of thing going around all the time it, it's it's hard to know what's true and what's what's just made up and certainly it's odd that in in fact in June of that year in 1559 Amy actually went up to London and was said to be in good spirits and again this time the Spanish ambassador reported she'd recovered from her illness so it's really hard to know whether that's true or not. There has been um, as you say a lot of speculation that um, cancer might have contributed either to her physical deterioration uh, or also of course to uh, the depression she appeared to be suffering from in the days and months before she died and certainly I mean if she was becoming very ill with cancer, that could quite easily have uh, have contributed um, to a physical weakness that might have led to her fall. But I think it's far from proven. It's another of these sort of tantalising hints that we just get a few clues about, and it would be so useful to 
to know a bit more about that. But um, we, we just don't know at the moment. It's certainly a, a strong possibility, though, I would say. Do you have any theories of your own? <laughs> about about whether about she her, was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or how she, how died, she died, or, yeah. yeah. I think it was an accident. I mean, I do, I, I did do such a lot of, such a lot of reading for this when I was, when I was writing um, Forgotten Sister. But um, I did, and I have to say a little reluctantly, because by this time I'd come to dislike Robert quite a lot, and I was perfectly prepared to believe it might have been, it might have been set up by him. But I do actually think that uh, circumstantially looking at all the evidence, I think it probably um, it probably was an accident. I don't think it was suicide. I think that's a really interesting question as well, because, of course, that is something that has been raised. Um, and we do know it's true that uh, Amy had been depressed in despair, in fact, at, at times over Robert's neglect of her, his obvious interest in Elizabeth, all these rumours that were going around that he was trying to poison her even. Um, so the fact that she was clearly unwanted and an obst obstacle to his ambition, I mean, understandably, that would have made her feel terrible, I imagine. But the big argument against suicide, I think, that we always come back to is Amy's strong Christian religion. And of course, belief was such a huge and important and integral part of people's lives in this period. Suicide was a mortal sin. Um, you know, it went against the will of God. It meant you shouldn't be given a Christian burial. I mean, I'm not suggesting, of course, that it was impossible, but I do think that that would have been an enormous deterrent uh, for Amy, particularly with the strength of her belief. And in fact, it was something which immediately afterwards, one of her uh, ladies in waiting said, no, no, she would never do a thing like that. She she had too strong a, a faith. So that is the argument, I think, against that. But, you know, again, who knows? Um, and yes, as I say, I don't think I don't think she was pushed um, much as I'd like to blame Robert for this. Uh, I think it was just a terrible accident. It's so interesting and simultaneously frustrating because we just are never going to know. It's like all of these great historical mysteries, isn't it? That you exactly you want to uncover. You want to uncover as much as you can and, and you really want to find out what actually happened. Hence, that had the great benefit of time travel. If only we could just go back to that place and time and see what really happened. But right. um, on the other hand, you know, if we knew the answer, then we, we wouldn't have the pleasure of discussing all the options and speculation and, and so on. So um, that's so true. Actually, you, couldn't have, <laughs> exactly. you couldn't pick a side and have a fight about it. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, that, that uh, I, I don't mind that there's a bit of mystery still around these things. It makes it more interesting to write about. Exactly. And we love reading your writing. So it works out for everyone. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to all our listeners for writing in your questions. We love your participation every time. Um, so, Nicola, how can we find you on social media and how can we find your books and how can your listeners get in touch with you? Okay. Well, I love chatting about history and writing and historical mysteries and just about anything really with people. So you can find me um, on Facebook, uh, Nicola Cornick on Facebook and on Twitter at Nicola Cornick uh, and on Instagram indeed as Nicola Cornick. Um, and my website is uh, nicolacornick.co.uk and as I say, uh, I'm incredibly happy and excited to chat to anyone who has a passion for history uh, and if you would like to uh, read my books, you can get those um, from Amazon, uh, Com and Co UK, um, and also from all good bookstores. Perfect. Well, we will be looking for them. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me. Always such a pleasure. And now, a brief history. It was 9 a.m. on a beautiful spring morning in 1536. A slender woman, dressed in a gable hood and an ermine cloak, walked over the grass toward a huge crowd of people. They stood around a wooden scaffold on the tower green, waiting to watch a spectacle never seen before. The execution of a crowned and anointed queen. Anne Boleyn had been convicted on the 15th of May of adultery and treason and sentenced to die. But as she approached that wooden stage, everyone present may have thought that this was intended to be a drama enacted so that the king could look magnanimous when he pardoned her at the last second. That was Henry VIII's style. Later in the month, he'd have John Hussey write to Lord Lyle in Calais and tell him that a pardon for a condemned prisoner had been granted. But he wanted Lyle to proceed with the execution to the very last instant before announcing it. 
on the 16th of May and had been visited by Archbishop Cranmer. Later that evening at dinner, she was cheerful and told the ladies present that she was going to be sent to a convent. The following morning, Cranmer announced that Anne had revealed to him an impediment that made her marriage to Henry VIII invalid, and it was thus annulled. Now it appears a great deal had been struck. Anne would agree to an annulment in exchange for a royal pardon, and she would be sent to a convent to live out her days. But it seems she still had doubts. We can't know what was going on in Anne's mind on the evening of the 17th of May, 1536. Earlier in the day, she asked Lady Kingston to approach Princess Mary on her behalf and beg for forgiveness if Mary felt Anne had wronged her. She spent the entire night in prayer with her almoner. One way or another, Anne's life as queen had ended, and she was cleansing her soul of her sins, trying to make right her earthly wrongs and prepare for whatever was to come in the morning. But 9 a.m. came and went with no sign of soldiers to escort her out to the scaffold. Anne called for William Kingston, the constable of the tower. He told her the execution had been delayed until noon. He didn't tell her why. The problem was that a huge crowd of people had gathered around the scaffold to watch the historic moment, the first execution of a Queen of England. But the King and Council wanted as few witnesses as possible because they worried that Anne would declare herself as an innocent woman. They wouldn't close the gates to keep the people out, but they could try to discourage them in other ways. Now, Kingston wrote to Cromwell and assured him that if they confused the crowd as to the time of the event, that there would only be a few that would remain. Anne fell back into prayer. At noon, there was only silence in the halls outside her chamber. She had to call again for Kingston, who told her this time that the execution would take place the following morning. It's something that's perhaps overlooked in her accounts of her execution. The incredible cruelty of leaving this woman on tenderhooks, not knowing what was going to happen or when. She complained to Kingston that she'd hoped to be dead and past her pain by now. And Kingston misunderstood and told her that there shouldn't be any pain because the sword they intended to use was so subtle. Anne said she'd heard that the swordsman was very skilled and she had a little neck. And then she burst into laughter. Kingston again misunderstood and told Cromwell that he had never seen a prisoner who took such joy and pleasure in death. But Anne probably wasn't really eager to die. She just wanted the agony of the uncertainty to end, one way or another. She began to pray again. And it's not hard to imagine that an intensely religious woman such as Anne told herself that two nights in prayer was good for her soul. Even if Henry did pardon her at the last moment, maybe it would be good preparation for convent life. The next morning, Kingston found that the crowd gathered around the scaffold was enormous. Some say up to 2,000 people, but they couldn't delay any longer. So Anne walked from the royal apartments built for her coronation through the Cold Harbor Gate and around the White Tower to an area near its northwest corner. On that morning, a wooden scaffold stood there, its rough boards covered in black velvet. And it must have struck a bizarre, incongruous note that velvet bunting meant to fancy up the platform of a death. But Anne was a queen, and until her death, everything had to be appropriate for her rank. Witnesses record that she looked back over her shoulder frequently, perhaps for the king's messenger, bearing her pardon. She climbed the scaffold steps and gave the expected speech of a condemned prisoner, praising the king as a good and gentle prince. Kingston must have nearly wept with relief. She had to remove her own cloak and hood because her ladies were crying too hard. Those ladies had originally been chosen because they were known to be hostile toward Anne. But now they wept like they were bereft <laughs> souls, as one witness said. Their obvious grief is why some have speculated that Henry relented and allowed Anne's friends to join her after her conviction, but there's no record of that. The simplest explanation is often the correct one. These women came to care for Anne deeply over the two weeks that they spent together, and now they couldn't even fulfill their duties of preparing her for her last moments. There was a cushion on the scaffold, and Anne knelt upon it. Accounts may vary as to whether she was blindfolded. She bowed her head to pray, and something remarkable happened. Something that is recorded at no other execution of the era. 
the crowd watching, dropped to their knees to pray with her. The executioner stepped forward and Anne glanced up at him. She turned to prayer, but her black and beautiful eyes opened again when he tried to move into position. The executioner seems to have been very kind. He turned toward the stairs and called, Bring me my sword! Anne turned her head to watch the stairs. Maybe, still at this moment, expecting someone to walk up with a pardon in their hand instead of a blade. The executioner swiftly picked up the sword he'd hidden below some straw and swung it at Anne's neck. She was turned away and never saw it coming. In an instant, it was over. And the cannons boomed from atop the tower walls to announce Anne Boleyn was dead. Henry never intended to pardon her, of course. He had no intention of having an ex-wife lurking in the background, calling his new marriage into question. So why go through the cruel ruse of telling her she'd be sent to a convent? Likely to ensure her compliance with the annulment and her submissive behavior on the scaffold. But perhaps the cruelest thing Henry ever did to Anne Boleyn was to offer her that hope. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a review wherever you listen. Reviews are some of the greatest gifts that you can leave a podcaster because it suggests their show to people who may not have even known it existed. So thank you so much for your support.